Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. Hi, everybody. I'm Pastor Scott Blevins, as Pastor Terry said earlier, and I'm part of the pastoral team here at Garfield Memorial Church, and apparently um, we're going to have a drinking game today to see how many times I say pastor. So don't use up your communion elements before we get there, though. Uh, It is good to be with you today, good to be worshiping with you as we continue this series, Planted, uh, where we talk about, you know, not just what's planted in us, but how God has planted us in the world. Uh, What's planted in us affects how we are planted in the world and how we impact the world around us. Pastor Chip has already talked about the importance of of having Bible study and Bible reading and worship planted deeply within us so the fruit that that bears can impact the world around us. Today we're talking about a third thing. We're talking about community. And if you've grown up in the church or if you've been in the church for any length of time, you might be thinking community is a strange topic for the passage that Terry just read. Well, uh, you know, Pastor Terry read the right passage. She read what I picked. If you're new to the church, if you're new to the church, you might already see how this passage connects to the topic of community. But we're going to start at the very beginning and work our way through this slowly. In fact, we're going to start even a little before the beginning of the passage. And I want to tell you in summary form a story. I can't tell the the whole thing. One of my favorite stories in the whole world is the story of Barrington Bunny. If you're not familiar with that story, you're probably thinking to yourself right now, Barrington Bunny? That sounds like some silly little children's story, like Babbity Rabbity and the Cackling Stump, something like that. If you're a nerd, you know that reference. If you know that reference and you don't think of yourself as a nerd, I apologize. But Barrington Bunny's not a silly little children's story. It's good for children, good for adults. It's the story of Barrington Bunny. No kidding. Barrington was a bunny who lived in a forest, and I'm going to, like I say, I've got to summarize the story. It's way too long to tell the whole thing. But he lived in a forest, and as far as he knew, he was the only rabbit in the entire forest, the only bunny in the whole forest. And he was most of the time okay with that, although at times he would feel a little bit lonely. But he felt particularly alone and particularly isolated at Christmas time. And on this particular Christmas, there was snow on the ground. All of the other animals were gathered with their families to celebrate Christmas, but Barrington couldn't join any of them because he couldn't climb the tree to be with the squirrels. He couldn't swim through the lake to be with the beavers. And he couldn't fit down that little tiny hole to get together with the field mice. And so Barrington found himself in a clearing in the middle of the forest, feeling lonely, feeling isolated, feeling completely at loss as to what his place and purpose in the world was. And as he was sitting there, he was crying, he was distressed, he was agonizingly alone until he realized he wasn't alone. And then he looked up and there was a giant silver wolf. You're supposed to be scared at that point because you know that wolves eat bunnies. And Barrington knew that as well, but this was not that kind of wolf. And the wolf looked at Barrington and he said, Barrington, why are you crying? And Barrington said, because I'm the only bunny in the forest and I'm alone. I'm alone. 
And the wolf said, Barrington, you're a bunny. Bunnies can hop, and they're very furry and warm. Those are gifts, good gifts given to you. No strings attached. And Barrington looked at the wolf, looked him in the eye. It's tough for a bunny to look a wolf in the eye. And he said, what good does it do me to have those gifts if I'm alone? You ever feel alone? You ever feel alone? If you're feeling alone, you got to understand you're not alone. And we're going to get to that in a moment. I want to I go back to the story that Pastor Terry read, this account of Jesus with his disciples in community with his disciples on the night before he would die. And in that time, he took that bread. You know, this was a holiday for those folks. This was like Christmas and Easter all rolled into one. For the Jewish people, the celebration of Passover was and is the main celebration, the spiritual highlight of the year. And and they were gathered there and at the end of that Passover meal, Jesus took the elements of that Passover meal and he 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 injected new fresh powerful meaning into them. And he took that bread and he broke it and he said, "This is my body." This bread is my body, and it's broken for you. And after dinner, he took the cup, and he said, this cup, this cup is filled with my blood. It's a new covenant. A new, a new covenant. What does that mean? Well, the covenant was the agreement between God and the people of this world, particularly the Jewish people at that time who saw themselves as children of the covenant. And a covenant's like a contract, except better or worse, depending on how you look at it. In a contract, if one party breaks the contract, the other people in the contract are like, okay, I'm done, I'm out of here, you broke it, I have no further obligations to you, that's the end of our relationship. A covenant is not like that. In a covenant, if one party breaks the covenant, the other party is still obliged to keep the covenant. And God had made a covenant with his people. He had met with them on the mountain and Moses was there. And he gave them a way to live, a way to live that would be a blessing for all people, not just the Jewish people, but all the people of the world. And it would be a way to live that would virtually eliminate poverty, a way to live that would, that would allow people to be in close connection and close community and, and, and work through that without driving each other crazy or tearing each other apart or using or exploiting or abusing each other. And, and, and God said, you know, this is the covenant. You keep this covenant. I will be your God. I've given you this way of living. And the people said, we will keep this covenant. We will be your people if you will be our God. And God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then like 20 minutes later, the people were breaking the covenant. But God never did. Over and over and over again throughout the, we call it the Old Testament. Jesus called it the scripture. It was the Bible in his day. But throughout that, that's not a story of an angry God punishing his people. That's the story of a covenant God who loves his people time and time and time and time again, coming back to them to draw them back into the covenant. And Jesus said, with this Passover meal, with this Passover meal, with this cup, this cup is my blood. And this new covenant, it's not written in stone on a stone tablet. It's written in my my blood and it's for you and for all people and then he told him this shocking news that one of the folks one of you people here one of you all eating at this table with me is going to betray me 
And immediately the disciples, his people, did what people do. They started arguing about it. They started pointing fingers, you know. And Peter leaning over to John saying, you know, John, I bet it's going to be, you know, Andrew over there. He's always been kind of a jerk. And John says, really, I think you're kind of a jerk. It's probably you. And Peter says, it's not me. I'm a much better disciple than you. And John's like, oh, I'm a much better disciple than you all. And James is like, I'm a better disciple than anybody here. And they go from pointing their fingers to rank ordering each other to I'm better and one upsmanship and all of that saying, it's all about me. And Jesus is over there going, ah, these people, these people. And he breaks in and he says, you know what? I'm inviting you all to be leaders in my kingdom. But in my kingdom, my kingdom's not like the world. In the world, people who are leaders, they lord it over the people that they're leading. They make sure everybody knows that they're in charge. And the world, in this world, apart from my kingdom, the people that are most important, the greatest people, make sure that everyone else is serving them. But my kingdom's not like that. In my kingdom, the greatest person should be like the youngest. And in Jesus' culture, the youngest was the least important, had the least resources, the least power, the least authority. The greatest person, Jesus said, should be like the younger. And the, the leaders... The leaders should be like the ones who serve. And make no mistake about it, I am God. I am the Son of God, and I am among you as one who serves. Now the disciples are all, you know, it was his fault anyway. I didn't start the argument. And Jesus looks at Simon, also called Peter. It's interesting, Jesus had changed Simon's name. When he, when he called Simon to be his disciple, his name was Simon. At one point, Jesus said, I'm not going to call you Simon anymore. I'm going to call you Peter. Peter's like Rocky. It means rock. So Peter, you know, Jesus is saying, Peter, man, Rocky, you got to be solid. you got to be firm. And now at this point, Jesus is calling him Simon again. Simon, Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift all y'all, all y'all like wheat. Now, if you didn't grow up in farm country like I did, you might know what that mean, might not know what that means to sift people like wheat. When you, when you harvest wheat, the grain of wheat is inside a husk, and sifting it means you're shaking it, and those husks fall off, and they're light, and they're worthless, and the wind just blows them away, and what's left is the grain is what you want to keep. And Jesus is saying, Satan wants to sift all y'all like wheat. He's going to squeeze you to see what comes out. He's going to find out whether you're the peel or whether you're the fruit. Whether there's anything in you worth keeping. All y'all, he's going to do this. And they understood that that metaphor meant it wasn't going to be fun. It wasn't going to be pleasant. That kind of trial by fire is never fun. They didn't know how bad it was going to be, but they knew it was going to be bad. And then Peter, after saying, Satan's going to sift all y'all like wheat, Jesus still focused on Simon. He says, but Simon, Simon, I have prayed for you, Simon. And when you turn back, you would strengthen your brothers. And Simon, we didn't read this part, but Simon went on to say, oh, Jesus, Jesus I'm never going to betray you, Jesus. Jesus, I am with you to the end, Jesus. I'll get arrested for you, Jesus. I'll die for you, Jesus. But Jesus knew better. Jesus knew these guys. He knew them inside and out. 
And with Jesus, who was fully human and also fully God, with the vision in the eyes of God, he could look down just a few hours down the road where he, Jesus, would be hauled up before this sham mockery of a trial. He's already been beaten up. He's already been punched. He's already been spit upon. He'd be there in that room at the, fair, at the, at the, the Sanhedrin's house and, 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 and Peter would be out there in the courtyard watching through the open door. And Peter would get scared. Peter, I'll die for you, Jesus. I'll die for you. I'll never betray you. And a little girl comes up and says, weren't you with Jesus? And Peter's like, no, me? What? Oh, no, never know the guy. Don't know who he is, just trying to stay warm by the fire. A little cold out here tonight. And then two other servants come up and ask him the same thing. And finally, Peter's like, I don't know the man. And the third time he says it, the rooster crows. The sun comes up and Peter remembers. And Luke tells us, this is such an incredible moment that Peter looks in to where Jesus is. And Jesus is looking at Peter. And Peter ashamed and broken, walks out. He's alone in his shame. He's alone in his brokenness. But Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him. Do you ever wonder if Jesus sees you in your aloneness? And in your brokenness, do you ever wonder if Jesus sees you in your agonizing isolation? He saw Peter. And he sees you. And he didn't judge Peter. He knew what Peter was going to do. He knew all the way. He knew what Peter was going to do. He didn't judge Peter. He didn't tell, oh, you know, Peter, you tell me you're going to die for me, you worthless piece of crud. You're going to betray me. You know, he didn't do any of that. He didn't lecture him. He didn't give him three simple points on how not to deny your Savior, which are conveniently alliterated so you can remember them easily in times of pressure. He didn't do any of that. He prayed for him. He prayed for him. And that's what Jesus is doing for you, too. When you are alone, when you are isolated, Jesus sees you. And he's not judging you. He knows what you did. He knows what you've done. He knows what's been done to you. He's not judging you. He's not rank ordering you. He's not trying to figure out whether you're worth something or not. He's not, certainly not trying to figure out whether you're worth more than the person, you know, on the other side of the room or the other side of the store or the other side of the office. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. That's Satan does that kind of stuff evaluating Jesus is praying for you he's praying for you and oh my what he prays oh my what he prays you know loneliness loneliness is an epidemic and I didn't invent that I didn't decide that. Remember all the way back to 2018 before coronavirus uh, magazine, uh, Psychology Today was reporting it. It was based on research done of interviews of 20,000 Americans. And they discovered that loneliness is an epidemic. 
that loneliness in the United States has increased by 100% over the last 50 years. You remember telephones, how those were supposed to keep everyone connected and and all of these great highways and fuel-efficient automobiles that we have so we can travel and get together with each other. And then there was cell phones so you didn't even have to be at home to make a phone call to talk to someone you love. You could reach out and touch someone from anywhere. And, And then there was texting you could do at any time, even during class when you're supposed to be doing other stuff. And then there was the internet where you could email... All of these things that are supposed to connect us, social media, we can connect with people. And loneliness has reached epidemic proportions. This study, this survey found out that 80% of Gen Zers, that's the youngest generation right now, 80% report feeling alone, being isolated. 70% of, Gen, of uh, millennials, 60% of Gen Xers, 50% of baby boomers feeling alone. And this is not just, you know, oh, you know, that's so sad. They're feeling alone. No. Research has shown feeling alone, loneliness is as physically devastating to our bodies as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, as being morbidly obese. It increases blood pressure and high cholesterol. It takes its toll on our mental and emotional health, increases dramatically the likelihoods of depression and anxiety. Loneliness is an epidemic. And Time Magazine, who knew Time Magazine still existed? Go figure. Time Magazine reported earlier this year that, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic has only made all of that worse. So if you are feeling lonely, isolated, disconnected, in an agonizing way, you're not alone. I know that doesn't help. That doesn't help. But Jesus... But Jesus, in your aloneness, Jesus sees you and he's praying for you. And oh, what he prays for you. He prays what he prayed for Peter, that your faith may not fail. Your faith may not fail. Now, again, if you've been a part of the church for a long time, particularly if you grew up in the church, you're going to hear that word faith probably in the wrong way. Faith does not mean belief. Faith is not the mental believing that something is true or real. Um, It's just not. It gets translated that a lot in the New Testament English translations, but that's not what the Greek word, the Greek word is pistis. And, And think of it this way, if you doubt me that there's a difference between faith and belief. Think of the president you like the least. You pick, there's lots to choose from. Think of the president you like to believe to you like the least and ask yourself, do I believe that that person was really alive and really president is real al- really alive is really president? Well, yeah. That's why you dislike him as president. They were or are alive and were or are president. Now, ask yourself this, do you put your faith in that person? There's a world of difference between faith and merely believing something. Faith, pistis, had to do with fidelity. It had to do with loyalty. It had to do with putting your trust in someone, of entrusting yourself to them, and then following their lead. 
That's why in the covenant, the notion was, if you, are my, if you will be my people, I will be your God. I will be your God and you will be my people. God's role was to be faithful to his people, to be gracious to them, to bless them with things that only God could bless them with. And the response of the people was to be faithfulness to God, to follow God's lead, to give their lives to him, to surrender their own wills and follow what God wanted. Obedience is a part of faith. And Jesus is praying that your faith would not fail. Not that you would not stop believing in God. That's, you know, you, that's part of it too. It really, you got to believe that God exists before you can really put your faith in him. But don't lose your faith in God. Don't stop following where God is leading, doing what God says needs to be done. Faith, Simon, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Faith in what? Faith in what? Now, again, if you grew up in the church, you've been part of the church for a long time, you've filled in that blank already. Faith in God. Of course, that's what Jesus is praying about. Faith in God. That's not what Jesus said. If you're new to the church, if you're visiting online for the first time, haven't heard any of this stuff preached before, you probably see it already. Jesus said that your faith may not fail and that when you turn back, you will strengthen your brothers, strengthen your sisters. Jesus is praying for Simon that he would not lose faith in the community that Jesus had called him into. That's a horse of a different color right there. Not lose faith in the community. Not lose faith in the people. These people? I can hear Peter saying that as they were walking from the upper room out to, you know, the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter going, ah, you know, first of all, he's, he's leaning over to John again and saying, you thought you were better than me, but, you know, Jesus said he's praying for me. And John said, yeah, he's praying for you because you're an idiot, right? You need the prayer. Peter's like, well, yeah, he's praying for me, praying for me. And he's thinking, come back and strengthen these people, these people, these people we got to understand that Jesus' disciples were this motley crew of, of dunderheaded numbskulls, loudmouth jerks, self-righteous mama's boys, self-seekers. You know, uh, there, was, there, was, there was wealthy people who'd been traitors to their country. There were political zealots who, depending on which side of the aisle you were on, they were either freedom fighters or they were terrorists. And there were people that we don't know anything else about. There were rich, there were poor, educated, uneducated. There were blue-collar and professionals. There were women in this group that Jesus treated like they were equal with the men. And there were foreigners in this group. People ethnically, religiously, and morally different. And he's like, these people? These people? And Jesus is, yeah. These people, in your isolating loneliness, Jesus' prayer is that you won't lose faith in the community, the people that he has called you to be part of. And you might be saying, Pastor, you don't understand my life. You don't understand my experience. These people you're talking about have hurt me. And Jesus said, you know, they hurt me too. These people rejected me. And Jesus is like, they, they reject me too. 
And you say, well, these people, they don't understand me. And Jesus is like, it's been 4,000 years. They still don't understand me. Yeah, but these people, Jesus, these people, how, what, am I, what am I supposed to do with these people? Strengthen them. How am I supposed to do that like I did? Serve them. These people, these people. Why? Why at this moment? Is, and you know what? The, it, it, if you doubt what I'm saying, that he's talking about faith in these people right now, then, then we've got to look at, at also this notion that when you turn back, Jesus said when you turn back, again, church folks might think that Jesus means repentance here. Repentance is often about, talked about in the Bible as, as turning back or turning around or changing. But the word is not repentance. That word, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. And it, it is at its heart, at its essence, a change of the mind. Jesus uses a different word that literally means physically to turn around and go back. Jesus was going to be dead in the ground when this happened. Or then alive and ascended into heaven. And Jesus said, when you turn back, you have left, Peter. You're ashamed of what you've done. You're ashamed of what you've said. You're embarrassed in front of everybody because you did the exact opposite of what you announced to the whole world you were going to do. And you're embarrassed and you're ashamed. But when you turn back, when you go back. Jesus didn't spend all this waste any time looking at all the bad stuff Peter had done. He jumped right to who Peter was, and he knew that Peter was going to go back. He believed in Peter, and Peter did go back. And when you go back, strengthen your brothers and your sisters. You know, why at this time would Jesus be talking about the community? Why isn't he talking about himself? Why isn't he talking about, you know, uh, grand and glorious things or doing miracles or reminding him I'm going to rise again. Don't worry, I'm dying tonight, but I'll rise here in a couple days. It'll all be good. He did tell them all that other stuff at other times, and they didn't understand because, you know, it's us. Because Jesus sees so much more clearly than we do how important, how utterly essential this community is. In this kind of community, this, this gathering of, of diverse people, of knuckleheads and dunderheads and, and, and know-it-alls and people that always want to lecture and people that are, you know, like me, people that always, you know, want to tell other folks what they're doing wrong and people that have all the right answers and simple answers to simple questions, these people that, that you know, that are different and diverse politically, morally, ethically, you know, this gospel community of which I am absolutely convinced Garfield Memorial Church is part of, this gospel community is life. It is life. The writer of Ecclesiastes said it this way thousands, or, you know, thousands of years ago. Two are better than one. They have a good return on their labor. Even if one of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the one who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. 
Some of the hardest work I've ever done physically was when I was working as a camp uh, staff person, Camp Otterbein down in southeastern Ohio a billion years ago. And, and I went every year early to help with the setup of the camp. And it was hard work, a lot of physical labor. But Joe was there, one of my best friends in the world. And sometimes Dwight, another great friend. And that work with two of us or three of us to do it was so much better. It was still hard, but, but there was joy in it. There was life in it. One of us slipped and fell. The other was there to lift him up. i, I got to tell you, we didn't do any keeping each other warm at night. But you know what? On a cold night, alone, thank God when there's someone there to keep you warm. This community is life. And more than just physical life, this community is gospel life. The community isn't just part of the good news of Jesus Christ. In a very real sense, the community is the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus is hard to explain to folks that haven't been part of the church and grown up with Sunday school or, or, or kids' space or all of that kind of stuff. You know, think about it. Think about it. Let's pull ourselves out and think about it from the perspective of someone who's never heard it before. You want me to believe in Jesus, right? Right, right. Jesus, he lived, what, 2,000 years ago? Yes. And he died on the cross? Yes. He died, but he rose again, and he's still living. He's still living, 2,000 years old Jesus. Well, he's actually much older than that. He's actually also God, and so he's been around since forever. So he's God. Jesus is God, right? So when, when there's more than one God, no, there's only one God. So when Jesus died, who was running the universe? Well, God was running the universe, but Jesus was God, and he's dead. Well, Jesus is God's son. Well, is Jesus God's son, or is Jesus God? He's both. He's God, and he's God's son. And, and, and you've seen this Jesus you're talking about. He's alive. You've talked to him. Now, I haven't actually seen him. We can't really see him. Maybe once in a while. I've heard time, times he shows up and talks. We, do you understand how hard that is? To accept rationally if you haven't grown up hearing it over and over and over again. We don't know what Jesus looked like. We don't know what Jesus sounded like. We don't know how tall Jesus was. We don't know what kind of clothes he wore. He didn't write any books or leave us any sort of physical description of himself. And no one else did either. We don't know what Jesus smells like. You ever think about that? Jesus smells. Jesus has a smell. I pray to God he doesn't smell like Acts. That will make eternity really hard. It's hard to show people Jesus without showing him the community that he died and rose again to bring into existence. When you can show people a motley crew of knuckleheads and know-it-alls, a people of different skin colors and nationalities, people of different languages, ethical and moral backgrounds, and people that everywhere else in the world, they're at each other like this, or they're pulling each other apart, or they're tearing each other down, or they're putting walls up to keep each other out, or they're, or they're, or they're kicking people out, or they're throwing them in jail. Everywhere else, there's this Conflict and violence and hatred and nastiness and xenophobia and people circling the wagons to protect themselves. But here in the church, we sit down and we have coffee together. We share a meal together. We laugh together. We go on mission together. We walk and work and worship together in the church. And people look at that and they say, how can this be? What's keeping all of these people together? You say, the only thing we all got in common is Jesus. He called all of us to the table. 
He died for all of us. His body was broken for all of us. The church is the gospel message in the world. It's the way the world knows that Jesus is real. Or it's the way the world says, you know, I've seen his church, and if that's Jesus, I don't want anything to do with him. We have been called to be this church, and Garfield is not, you know, we're not a perfect church. We're not a perfect church. But I believe we're a gospel church. I believe we're a church, a community, where you can find life, where you can be kept warm when it's cold, when someone can pick you up when you fall down. We, we, got, more just in, we got more in common than just Jesus. We're all broken. We've all got shame in our lives. We all need life. We all need each other. And Jesus, you know, we don't have to be broken anymore because Jesus, Jesus' body, his body, it was, I'm going to rip this apart. This is tough bread. His body was broken for us. His body, we don't have to, we, the reason why we don't have to be fighting each other, why we don't have to live out the brokenness in the world is Jesus' body, it's already been broken for us. We don't have to shed each other's blood because Jesus' blood, he shed his blood for us. And this blood, he wrote a new covenant with this blood. And in that covenant, he reaffirmed his commitment. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I know what you've done. I know what's been done to you. My blood will cover that and make you clean. And when you turn back, If you're isolated, if you're lonely, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers and your sisters. Come to the church and say, what can I do to strengthen the church? What can I do to build up my sisters and my brothers? We're going to share in this bread and this cup together today. Wherever you are right now, I want to say amen to what Pastor Terry said before. Wherever you are, God is there and he sees you. Even if you feel utterly alone this morning, God is with you and God sees you. And Jesus' body was broken for you and he says, take and eat it. And remember me. And you've got your drink. Jesus says, this is my blood used to write a new covenant. Take it and drink it and remember me. I I left it hanging with Barrington. I got to tell you what happened to Barrington. And then we're wrapping up it's a communion thing that happened with Barrington the wolf said to Barrington after Barrington said what does a good what good is it to be able to hop and be furry and warm if I don't have any family and the wolf looked at Barrington and said every animal in the forest is a member of your family and so that Christmas night Barrington instead of focusing on how alone he was he said what can I do to build up my family and he took some fresh twigs and dry leaves and 
wrapped him up in a package and left him for the squirrels to find on Christmas morning. He found a really nice stick and he left it for the beaver family to find on Christmas morning. And then when the snow was falling and the blizzard was there and he was trying to figure out what to do for the field mice, field mice he heard a little tiny squeaking and found the little youngest mouse from the family trapped out in the snow. And Barrington huddled up around him. It was furry and he was warm and he kept that field mouse warm all through the night. And when the rest of the family came out on Christmas morning and they were so, so happy to see their little one alive that they hardly noticed the frozen carcass of the dead bunny rabbit that had kept him warm. But the wolf noticed and he saw and he stayed with Barrington all that day and into the night because that's what gospel community is. We make good on Peter's boast. I'll go to prison for you. I'll die for you. I love you that much. Let's go out and be that community in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.